Welcome to Fleet Baptist Church. We hope you enjoy the latest in our teaching series. Well, thank you for joining me around the world of God today. I want to share something today that is of great importance to me. Um, In actual fact, uh, I felt led to write a book on this subject, and I want to share just a, a little part of that with you in the teaching this morning. Um, I feel that whilst it's a message I've run with for many years, in the times in which we're living, I feel it has become more important, even relevant, even urgent at this time. And it's the theme of preparing the bride, preparing the bride. Uh, So first of all, I'd like to think with you today about the question of time and timing, time and timing. Now, There are two words, chronos and kairos, that I'd like just to think about before I get into the main thrust of the teaching today. Um, Chronos speaks of time in a linear sense. It's a chronological time, a beginning, a passing of time, and then an end of time. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same. It's a day or a year or a period of time. Like when Israel was in the wilderness, it was a period of time. It was a season. And the day of the Lord's favor is a season. It's a period of time. And then there's Kairos. And Kairos time means the right time, uh, a moment in time. It speaks of an opportune moment or a critical moment. Now, in rhetoric, Kairos is a passing instant when an opening appears which must be driven through with force if success is to be achieved. So we must do this now is a Kairos moment. There isn't another opportunity. Let me try and give you some biblical examples. In in the life of Jesus, in Mark 1 verse 15, Jesus spoke of an appointed time in the purpose of God. And he said, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that moment, that Kairos moment is used 86 times in the New Testament and refers to an opportune moment, a season that it's possible to miss that window of opportunity. So when Jesus says, repent, it's now. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand now. Believe the good news now, because it's now that is the Kairos moment. Again, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 24, King David was told by God, as soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. In other words, don't go before me. Don't miss the opportunity and go too late. There's a window of opportunity. And when you know that window of opportunity is upon you, you'll know because you'll hear the wind in the trees above you. Of course, in John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus spoke of the wrong time. And he said, uh, therefore, Jesus told them, my time has not yet come for you. Any time will do. But this is not my moment. This is not my Kairos moment. Speaking of the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, we read that Jesus came at just the right time. That was a Kairos moment. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And as you take time to read through your Bible, you will see that Abraham and Moses and Jacob at Jacob's well all experienced Kairos moments, encounters with God that changed their lives forever. Now, I want to share with you today the beginning of a story, and it's the story of Esther. And you can find this story of Esther in the book of Esther uh, in your Bibles, and it, it can it connect it with what I understand to be a now moment, a Kairos moment, an appointed time in the purpose of God. And I believe that the season we're in is a season of God preparing the bride for the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. The bride, of course, being the church of Jesus Christ. That's the season. But the Kairos moment is now's the time to get on and do it with intentionality. And so I want to share with you the little story of Esther and try and relate it to what Holy Spirit is doing in preparing the bride for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to planet Earth. And if you've got your Bibles, it's well worth reading the whole story in the book of Esther, particularly chapters 1 and 2. What we start off with is a picture given to us of an extravagant king's banquet. King Xerxes gave a 180-day display of his vast wealth. And of course, his his whole empire went from Egypt right through to India. It was vast. And he wanted to display all the achievements of his empire. And at the end of that, uh, he, he gave a seven-day banquet. Now, over the years, I've been to some celebrations and I've been to some parties. But 180 days? I wouldn't have the stamina for that. Seven days of a banquet of his special friends. And if you read the text, it's kind of like if you'd allow yourself to believe this, a picture of heaven because of the marble pillars and the fabrics and the goblets and the wine. And it was just like a wonderful picture of a heavenly banquet. And during this time, King Xerxes instructed his queen, Vashti, uh, to come and display her beauty to all his guests. And there's different perceptions on that, whether that was an abusive invitation or whether he was just very proud of his wife and wanted his friends to see how wonderful she was. Now, she was, of course, a, a Babylonian princess. Um, she was a captive, and she refused the king's command. And probably their marriage wasn't the best marriage when I think about it, because Vashti, she was the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. And therefore, she was the daughter of Belshazzar. And Darius, the Persian king, conquered the Babylonian Empire and conquered her father and kidnapped her and gave her to his son Xerxes as a prize, as a wife. So it wasn't a brilliant start to the marriage, really. But certainly Vashti, she was feisty and she had her own agenda. She had her own desires and aspirations and she refused to obey the king and she held her own party she had a different agenda to the king 
There's something to be listened to just there. And that's the danger of not responding to the king's command. Now, what the king chose to do, following the advice of his advisers, was to choose another queen. So Vashti was pushed to one side and the officials went looking through the whole land of Persia and chose Esther among a number of other young women to come into the palace to be trained to be presented before the king. And so what do we know about this young girl Esther? Well, she was a Hebrew girl and she was an orphan and she would have been exiled with or without her parents from Babylon, uh, from Israel to Babylon and then from Babylon to Persia because the conquering kings just kept taking the captives. So she was a long, long way from her home. She had no parents, so she was an orphan, and she was raised by her cousin Mordecai. So abandonment, low self-esteem, and being an alien in a foreign land was her lot in life. But the opportunity came. Again, a Kairos moment a moment of opportunity to be grasped or to be wasted. Now, she was beautiful. Now, this was a great asset to her. Some people like you and others might have other great assets, great intellect or uh, great beauty or great personality, whatever it might be. But God has gifted all of us with greatness. He's gifted us all with something that is unique to us but what God can use for his glory and the extension of his kingdom. And she was chosen, among many others, to be brought into the palace. And now, this is where the story becomes very interesting, because it says in the text that she was very obedient to her mentors. Haggai, the eunuch, was the man who was in charge of developing all these young women, preparing them, to be presented before the king. Now, the scriptures tell us that she was very humble and she was very willing and very obedient and therefore favour was shown towards her. Great favour, in fact, was shown towards her. So that makes sense to me because if you are a leader, if you are responsible for people, the people that are going to get your favour are those that cooperate, that show hunger, that show a willingness, that are obedient. You wouldn't want to show favour to people that were awkward and contentious and difficult and made your life hard. And so she was a clever girl. She was not only beautiful, but she learned how to make the best of the situation and how to submit to those that were set over her to prepare her to be presented before the king. Now, the preparation of Esther um, to be presented before the bridegroom took place like this. There was a year of preparation. Six months, she was soaked in oils and myrrh. And then for six months, she was soaked in perfume and cosmetics. Now, it is not rocket science to work out what these um, elements represent from a biblical perspective. But the challenge is, she wasn't doing anything. She was in a period of time, a chronos, 
a, a season where the priority, the kairos moment for her, was to submit to this preparation process. Now, let me just take you through <clears throat> this preparation process that she had to learn. She had to learn about um, palace protocol. I mean, she knew nothing of palace protocol, so she had to learn how to live within the palace of the king, how to work with the officials, how to present yourself, how to live. So six months, oil and myrrh. Or oil is, speaks of the Holy Spirit, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Six months where she soaked in the Holy Spirit. And, six, and in that six months of being soaked, she was also uh, impregnated. Uh, her whole body was soaked in myrrh. And myrrh is one of the three ingredients used in the holy anointing oil. Um, aloes, cassia and myrrh. And it speaks of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is calling the bride, the Church of Jesus Christ, to learn how to come into a more contemplative place to really be present and allow the anointing of the Holy Spirit to really absorb into our very being. But in that oil is myrrh. And myrrh not only speaks of the priestly robe, therefore the priestly role of intercession, between God and man and man and God. But it also speaks of death, because myrrh was used in the preparation of dead bodies. So, so myrrh, impregnated with this anointing of the Holy Spirit, speaks of death to the flesh life and life to the spirit. So the closer we get to Jesus, the more of his anointing comes on us, so there is a death to our flesh life of all that does not fit into Christ-likeness. It goes through a process of death. And after that, there was six months of cosmetics and six months of perfumes. Well, my wife, Karen, used to be a beauty therapist. And I learned way back uh, that how cosmetics can be used because of her profession. First of all, Cosmetics can be used to cover blemishes, to cover blemishes, but they're also used to highlight your natural features to make them a feature, to make them stand out. So cosmetics can be used to cover blemish, damage, imperfection, and cosmetics can be used to highlight who and what we are. And I believe this speaks of the healing, the inner healing process, in the same way that cosmetics could be used to help a person that's been scarred through damage physically. So I believe the Holy Spirit anoints us, we die to the flesh, but we come into a zone, an area where we can have healing from the blemishes in our life, the stains, the stigmas, the pain, the damage, and the Holy Spirit just heals us of those blemishes and draws to the surface our true personality and highlights who he's created us to be. There's real freedom in finding our true identity in Christ Jesus and making a feature of that and not making a feature of the blemishes of our life. 
That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that fantastic? And finally, that she was six months soaked in perfumes, fragrance. And I believe that God wants us to take on the fragrance of the living Christ in our lives. Now, I develop all of these things so much more in my book, um, Preparing the Bride, but sufficient to say today that we can change atmospheres because of the fragrance that can be released in and through us. As we change atmospheres, the fragrance of Christ in and through us in the places where God has set us. So there is um, uh, some interesting thoughts about oil and myrrh and cosmetics and perfumes. But the scriptures tell us that anything she wanted, she could have because she was being trained for royalty. She didn't have the breeding as Vashti. She didn't have the culture as Vashti. Therefore, she had to learn how to behave in a royal way. And I believe that's what happens when we come to Jesus Christ. We're born again into the kingdom of God, but we begin to learn how to live in the king's palace, how to live as kingdom people in a world that is alien to us. And so we experience blessing, favour, goodness of God in a cursed and damaged world. And of course, this is what Isaiah said in Isaiah 60, those first four verses where he says that arise and shine for your light has come for the glory of the Lord rises upon you. You see, there is darkness over the nations and thick darkness over the people, but my glory rises upon you. That's the favor of God. That's the glory of God. And I believe that in these last days, there will be a clear contrast between those in the kingdom and those out of the kingdom because of the work the Holy Spirit is doing in the true bride of Christ that will cause us to reflect the very nature, the glory and the person, Jesus Christ. And so the story goes on into chapter two, where um, Esther is now uh, presented before the king. And this is what the scripture says in verses 17 and 18. Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and his officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and gave and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Well, what a beautiful picture. Esther's come from being an orphan. She's come from being a, an outcast. She's been brought in. She's now gone through this pro- process of preparation. She's presented before the king and he chooses her over all the others to be his queen. And now she's able to be in the king's presence. What a wonderful picture. Now, it's difficult for us today to grasp the enormity of the power of the reigning monarch. There was no democracy. The king had absolute power over all his subjects. And whilst he was attracted to Esther more than all the other women, and she had won his favour and approval, and he'd put a crown on her and so on, 
she could not go into his presence just as and when she wanted. He would have had to have invited her and she would have had to have come in on invitation. Now, if she came into his presence unannounced or uninvited, and that would have been perceived as rude and a challenge to his authority, she would have been executed. Unless the king pointed his scepter toward her and that indicated that he, she was free and safe to come into his presence. The scepter, the seal of, the item of authority gave her access into his presence. Now, whilst this was all a fact, things were going on politically all around and there was, a, there was all kinds of threats to the king and threats to uh, destroy all of God's people. Um, and what we begin to see in the story is that Esther was not just brought into this place of blessing for the sake of being blessed and privilege. She was being prepared to be positioned for a purpose. And God used Mordecai and Esther to save the king's life. We read that in chapter 4. Haman set up this conspiracy and um, it didn't go well for him in the end because favour was upon Esther and Mordecai. But this threat was coming towards God's people. The threat was coming. And this is what the scriptures tell us in chapter 4 verses 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your role position for a time such as this. Now, I believe, brothers and sisters, that God has brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We are being trained for royalty. We're being prepared by the Holy Spirit as a beautiful bride for the coming Lord Jesus Christ. But I also believe that we have been put in this place of privilege and blessing for a time such as this, for a time such as this. And effectively, Mordecai says to the frightened Esther, just because you're cozy and comfortable now, don't think this threat will not affect you. God will provide for his people with or without you. But you are in a position to bring about change. You are in a position for a time such as this. So fast and pray, for the battle has to be won. And Esther's courageous response to her cousin was, well, if I perish, I perish. But I will go into the king, even uninvited, and I will intercede for my people. That challenges a lot of my self-indulgence. And it causes me to ask a question of myself. And hopefully you would accept that challenge to ask yourself the question. What mountain am I willing to die for? What do I value more than my own life? What treasure am I willing to give everything up for to obtain? What do I want to give my life for? What mountain are you willing to die on? For Esther, she realized that it was for a time such as this. 
And she said, if I perish, I perish, but I will have done all that I can to serve God, all that I am and all that I can to bring about change in the fortunes of my people. So this message is not about my comfort, my position or my ease. I believe it's a season of preparation where we need to be soaked in the anointing for sure, but we need to die to that selfish self-indulgent, prideful, part of our being. And we need to learn to be healed of all the things of the past. And we need to come into a place of preparation where we might be the fragrance of Christ. And even in that fragrance, we might be the smell of victory or the smell of defeat. Victory, for those that can hear, those that get the revelation, but it will be defeat for those that don't respond. And so I want to leave you with this divine purpose. In Romans 8, verse 28 through 32, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now, I read that scripture for us because I want to finish with this, this thought or this story. Many years ago, I was working for a a ministry, and it was the best of times and the worst of times, as is often the case. And it came to a place where my wife, Karen, and I, we had to resign our position, not because we fell out with people, but it was out of a sense of conscience and integrity and uh, a a real sense of uh, conviction. And so we resigned and we moved out. But it wasn't accepted very well and people got very upset and very angry with us and we felt very isolated and rejected and I got quite low. And one night in the early hours of the morning, the phone rang and I picked the phone up and it was my friend John Arnott and he uh, heard about what had happened and he was just loving on me, sharing, encouraging me. And he had gone through a very similar thing in the movement that he was once part of. And there was a parting of the ways of falling out, as it were. And one found oneself isolated and alone. And he said these words to me. He said, Clive, I know you know this passage of scripture, but I want you to read Romans 8 and let God speak to you. And so we hung up and early hours I went down into the lounge and I read Romans 8. And I came to that passage, which I've just read to you. And I read these words that it said, And those God predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who on earth can be against us? And suddenly it was like an oppressive weight just fell off of me. And I realized whether people approved of me or not, I had given my life to Christ. I had chosen to lay my life down for the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter who approved, who disapproved, 
I had given my life for the mountain of the kingdom of God. And if God was for me, then who on earth could jolly well be against me? And my heart exploded with this indescribable joy. Now, as the day went on, the children got up ready to go to school. I was trying to brush my teeth and I was laughing so much. Toothpaste was going all over the place. I couldn't get myself ready. Such was the joy of the Lord within my heart, knowing that I had God's approval and God would work everything together for his good. I knew that God had called me for a time such as this, and it was to herald uh, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to bring healing and wholeness to people. I'd been called to be a freedom fighter, just like you. Anyway, we got into the car, and as we're driving along to uh, the school to drop the children off, we pulled up outside, and the kids were saying, are you okay, Dad? And I said, yeah, what? why do you ask if I'm okay or not? And they just said, well, you've been really polite to everybody on the road. You've just not shouted at anyone. It's like maybe the whole stress of this situation had got me down, and I wasn't really behaving in a, an appropriate way. And as they got out of the car, and Sarah turned around, put her head through the window and said, it's great to have you back, Dad. And with that, she went off into school. It's great to have you back, Dad. And I feel that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to some of us, it's great to have you back. It's great to have you back on team. It's great to have you back in my kingdom. It's great to have you back as my child, because this is the priority. Now let me prepare you for greatness, to reveal me, to reflect me, to be light for me. In Jesus' name, amen.